0: We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. If you haven't been focused on subscription compliance before, you definitely need to start paying attention now. The Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, is getting serious about cracking down on dark patterns in the world of subscriptions. They recently filed a lawsuit against Amazon for enrolling consumers in Amazon Prime without consent and for what they call cancellation trickery. They've also announced plans to increase stringency around subscription rules. Today's guest on the podcast, Davis and Gilbert partner Pavana Kumar is a legal expert on e-commerce, with an emphasis on subscriptions. In today's conversation, we talk about some of the key elements in subscription regulations, the plan changes being proposed by the FTC in the US, and specific actions every subscription-based business should take if they wanna stay on the right side of the law. Pavana, welcome to the show. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. I know the legal side of subscriptions is something that remains kind of mysterious and murky for a lot of people, and yet it's so important. Before we jump into that, I want to ask you, what was the
1: path that led you to become an expert on subscription compliance? That's a great opening question. And it was actually given what a niche it is quite a surprisingly natural evolution so i've been in advertising and marketing law for my entire career so i've kind of seen my practice evolve alongside the industry right when i started at davis and gilbert we were still calling influencers bloggers and you know working in the metaverse and and e-commerce was really not the primary focus we're historically you know working in the advertising industry but over time I developed this really deep e-commerce focus, working with our retailer clients and our brand clients and developing that aspect of the practice, working with all kinds of DTC companies from startups to software companies to brand agencies, everything under the sun that could relate to how they engage with consumers and how they lead consumers through the purchase journey. So that could be use of consumer promotions, gift cards, loyalty programs, And over time, that really evolved to, well, you can't be a leader in the e-commerce space if you aren't on top of subscription programs and subscriptions compliance. I was seeing the rise of these programs well before the pandemic and kind of was starting to develop that expertise as I was seeing more and more of my clients start to develop these programs and be asking questions about how to make sure they comply with the various laws around them. And then I think it really hit an inflection point a little bit after 2020. Um, And now it just comprises such a huge part of my practice. I just think you can't really be an expert in e-commerce if you're not also really deep in the weeds on subscriptions. The other thing I'll add, too, is that as I've gotten more involved, I've really enjoyed being involved in the subscription community. You and I were both at Sub summit in Dallas, and I just loved seeing such a diverse group of founders and decision makers, women founders, all very passionate about identifying consumer pain points and coming up with solutions to problems that don't necessarily already have a solution. Lots of people with really great visions in the industry. I really enjoy working with those companies as outside counsel, more of as a partner to help them bring those visions to life while, you know, lowering their overall risk profile and and understanding what they have to do in pretty practical and simple terms, build their brand without losing their customers. I love how you said you're working with them as a partner on their
0: business as they're developing their business as, as part of that creative process. What are some of the issues from the legal side that come up as they're sharing their strategies with
1: you? Sure. So I think it may be helpful Everyone listening to take a step back in terms of what I mean when I say subscription compliance, right? So, when I say subscription compliance, there are federal laws that govern automatic renewal programs. So, that's your standard free trial conversion, or you have a subscription that renews every month, or every quarter, every six months, or every year. There's also laws in almost every state regulating those programs, too. And currently, there's no unified rule. So companies in the space, let's assume you're advertising to a nationwide base of consumers, have to figure out a way to comply with the federal law, as well as laws in each of these states. And these laws apply to any company in the subscription space. You could be a beauty subscription box, you could be a software as a service platform, you could be a technology company, you could be in healthcare, you could be in food and beverage. And these laws are going to apply to you if you run a program that has a subscription element to it. And specifically, those laws have very specific and stringent requirements around how you disclose to consumers what the terms of the program are, how they're going to be billed, getting affirmative consent from those consumers. So, you know, is that do you need a checkbox? Is it a button? What exactly does it have to say? Communicating with those consumers after they sign up. Really crucially, how they can cancel their subscription. I've heard a lot about this on the business side in terms of... The balance of being consumer friendly and prioritizing consumer retention. But the FTC is currently proposing certain updates to its laws that would require, for example, immediate cancellation of subscriptions. It would require you to be able to cancel your subscription in the same way that you signed up. And there's also going to be significant discussion around how you can upsell consumers. So, for example, In the past, I think it was a pretty common tactic for companies to say, oh, you want to cancel, here's a 20% offer instead of canceling. What the federal law is now proposing to say is actually have to ask the consumer's permission to upsell them before you actually do that upsell. So that's not really industry standard right now. And so at this point in my career, I'm sort of helping companies understand what these obligations are. A lot of them just aren't aware. You have... Companies from startups to enterprise level companies that may even be generally aware of these laws but don't really know how to comply and how to implement them, I work with companies from you know one lawyer to a hundred lawyers, but the company with a hundred lawyers might not have one that actually specializes in subscription compliance and really understands these obligations. I mentioned that these laws vary from state to state. Some of those states have really idiosyncratic requirements that might even vary depending on the billing cycle. So it's challenging for companies to come up with an approach that complies with this patchwork of laws without necessarily having to take the most conservative approach all the time. And so what I help companies do is sort of audit their processes to come up with an approach that works for them while understanding that there are benefits to consumer retention tactics and impact on revenue, while also making sure that they really understand these obligations and are able to comply in the states where they're targeting consumers.
0: You talked about how the states are quite varied. Is there a state that is either leading the charge or that is the most stringent that you look at first? Or is it really just idiosyncratic state by state?
1: I think California has really set the gold standard in terms of being the most conservative. And actually, I think we're going to get to this later. If you look at where the federal law is heading, I think they take a lot of cues from California in terms of what they want to implement on the federal level. You have some other idiosyncratic states like D.C., And Vermont have very specific requirements for annual plans that go above and beyond what you'd require for a monthly plan. So for example, requiring a checkbox for the ascent to the order renew, putting certain disclosures in bold in order to be conspicuous enough for the consumer. The rationale is that consumers are more likely to forget about an annual plan or less likely to really understand that the price is higher and it's going to order renew, whereas for monthly, you kind of know that it's going to renew every month. So some of those states are leading the charge, but new laws are being passed all the time. Like Idaho passed one in January of 2023. You know, California's law was recently updated. So it was New York's and Colorado's. So I like to say like, It seems very complicated. I try to keep the 50-state knowledge in my head so I can say, you know, here's what's required in these states. Does it make sense to bifurcate your approach? Does it make sense to just comply with California, D.C., and Vermont across the board? You know, that will be a case-by-case depending on what you're offering and if you need to dynamically populate a disclosure depending on the length of plan you're offering. Or if you can take a one-size-fits-all, it really depends on the client.
0: I know we have quite a few listeners globally, Europe, Asia, Latin America, Oceania, are the laws in the U.S. more or less stringent? And how do you think about kind of international companies that are trying to offer their subscriptions everywhere or where, you know, frankly, where consumers just find them and sign up?
1: That's a great question. I think the U.S. is definitely leading the charge and markets like the U.K. and Canada not far behind. Individual countries in Europe will have their own specific requirements like you know, Germany and other European countries. Typically, what we do for our global clients, we're part of a global advertising alliance of lawyers, many of whom are you know, trusted friends and advisors on these issues. We usually review from a U.S. perspective first and then do gut checks in other countries where we want to offer the program to see, do we want to take a varied approach? Can we figure out a way to streamline this across countries? I would say that at the moment, the U.S. is more conservative than the U.K. and Canada, other than perhaps on some privacy issues. I'm sure we're not going to get into this today, but GDPR is probably emblazoned on the minds of many of the people that are listening. Privacy issues aside, we definitely can take a global approach for a lot of the clients that come to me and figure out an approach that works everywhere.
0: We recently had Julie Hanson, the CRO of Babbel, the language learning company. And we had talked about some of the challenges that they faced coming from Europe to the U.S. and of course, keeping up with all of the regulations in Europe across all of those relatively small countries with both different language and, and different regulatory restrictions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly very familiar with those challenges.
0: Anything that you want to add specifically around working with influencers? You mentioned at the beginning that you were there back when, when influencers were you know, bloggers. What are some of the gotchas or some of the things that people should keep in mind when partnering with an influencer, let's say, try their products or endorse their products, sending free samples and the like?
1: Oh, gosh. Well, this could definitely be its own podcast for sure. But a lot of subscription companies and especially subscription box companies I found do partner a lot with influencers. So definitely worth mentioning. So the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, which separately regulates these subscription programs, also has guides concerning the use of endorsements and testimonials. That's what we colloquially referred to as influencer marketing. And one of the key considerations is when you're engaging an influencer to promote your product, there is what the FTC calls a material connection between you and that influencer. So i.e., if a person on social would think the influencer is just expressing their own independent opinion, but actually there is a paid relationship or another kind of relationship with a brand, that would have to be disclosed in some way. I think important to mention it's not just payment that would constitute the kind of connection. So if you give an influencer an experience or free products or a loaner products, or you give them tickets to an event, something like that, all of those are connections that would still need to be disclosed because it's going to, if a consumer knew about that, it might affect the credibility that they give to that endorsement. And that's why they need to know about it. Companies have a bit of latitude in terms of how to make that disclosure. I think we've evolved from when everyone was just trying to put hashtag ad on everything and the influences would push back, the brands would push back. And now there are a lot of more organic disclosures that can be used on various platforms. The FTC is actually currently in the middle of revising its endorsement guides to bring them into the new age. They actually haven't been formally updated since 2009. All the guidance since then has been in the form of FAQs and other informal guidance from the FTC. I think the new guides will be really instructive because they're going to specifically address how you can make appropriate disclosures on visual platforms like TikTok, specific considerations around the use of virtual influencers a little more guidance about how we can make sure influencers are giving their honest opinion about a product. That'll be interesting to see how they apply that to virtual influencers, given that they don't exist and wouldn't be able to actually try the product. That's another requirement. And another thing to watch out for too, is that when you engage an influencer to post about your brand, that's going to be viewed as advertising for the brand. And you want to treat that like you would any commercial. So making sure IP rights are cleared making sure you have an agreement in place with the influencer that addresses ownership of the content and exclusivity and making sure they aren't drumming up fake followers, things like that. These agreements have really evolved to take into account all of the different deceptive tactics that can happen online. So these are definitely all key considerations to keep in mind. The FTC is super focused on influencer marketing. It's going to be a big enforcement priority for them going forward. So definitely worth delving into on the side, making sure you have a really strong influencer policy. I work on those every day. So those are good things to consider if you are currently working with or thinking about engaging influencers.
0: So you brought the FTC a few times, the Federal Trade Commission, which which oversees commerce and these kinds of issues. Leslie Fair at the FTC, who's been very involved in a lot of the subscription regulation, she once said to me, she's like, look, I'm not trying to trick people. It's not like you need to lawyer up and really protect yourself against all of these things that I'm coming after you to get you on. I'm not going to get you because your font is eight point and not nine point or silver and not dark gray. I'm looking for egregious bad actors that are hiding the truth from consumers or misleading consumers. To what extent do you think that that is kind of Generally good, but not specific enough, or fine for most people, or maybe it's even disingenuous where you'd say, no, I actually see the FTC really going after people for very what I think of as sort of very borderline infringement.
1: It's a really interesting and good question because I think that is still generally true. And I've had, you know, informal discussions with the commissioners at the FTC where they say, yeah, look, like The first test case in a given area is going to be against the bad actors, the egregious actors that are trying to hide the ball on consumers and actually trick them into taking certain types of actions. That being said, I would say specifically in the negative options space, one of the reasons I think the FTC is proposing these kind of sweeping updates to the federal law on negative options is to create a consolidated set of guidance and make it really clear to people what their obligations are. There've also already been a number of FTC test case enforcement actions against the really bad actors in the subscription space. And so I think going forward, they are going to be taking a bit more of a nuanced view. We were probably about to get to this, but given that the FTC is currently proposing updates to the federal laws around subscriptions, those are available, right? They're published in the Federal Register. The FTC has publicized them. And there's going to be, like I think, a decent amount of lead time before they're codified into law. And to me, that says the FTC is saying, you don't really have an excuse not to know what these regulations are and what we're proposing and what we think affirmative consent looks like, what we think appropriate cancellation procedures look like, how to be clear and not hide the ball. And I think they're going to start being more aggressive. And even with the cases they've already brought, right? They've brought cases against companies like Match, settling in the hundreds of millions of dollars. they brought cases against smaller subscription box companies like Earthbox. And I think they're trying to show that there's no company that's really under their radar. I think we'll pause the point of saying, okay, you're a startup. The FTC is not going to come after you. I think they will start going after companies of all sizes. And they're also streamlining the negative option rule for a reason. They want to be able to go after companies in all media, not just online. So like telemarketing, order renew programs, in-person automatically renewing programs, make it much more holistic. And then they have a broader focus on what they're calling dark patterns, which is a really interesting term from them because it's not specifically defined as anything other than a deceptive practice, which the FTC can already regulate, <laughs> you know, under Section 5 of the FTC Act. But specifically, they're saying dark patterns or tricks that deceive consumers into taking actions they might not otherwise take online. And subscription programs are a really big subsection of that. And so it just shows me that that's an enforcement priority for them going forward.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we're moving into talking about the FTC. They've announced here in the US, as you said, that they're updating their laws around subscriptions, potentially adding stringent requirements. I love the language of dark patterns because it's just vague enough that it's sort of can put a broad, you know, covering is, is this a dark pattern? You can sort of think of it that way, right? Like back to this idea of they're not trying to trick you. They're saying, you know, if you're doing something that you're using words like consumer won't notice, or it's too hard, we'll get a couple of extra months out of them because canceling is tricky. I've seen companies add, I'm sure you have to add another screen, require a phone call, ask a whole series of questions on the way out that is exhausting and the person's like, look, I can't do this right now, I'll call you later and then another month goes by. I think all of those could fall under that dark pattern description, which I think is helpful for companies to just think more broadly about it instead of focusing on the font size or is it a checkbox or a button. Do you think it's fair to say that they're gonna start with the most egregious actors when they take action, the FTC, before going after more borderline cases or is now the time for every company, even companies that really try their best to be customer first, customer friendly, to really take a fresh look at everything they're doing and all of their user experience?
1: I want to first discuss the example you gave because your example was you know clicking through a bunch of screens, being put on hold, making being made to answer a survey before they can cancel. That is one hundred percent bullseye for the FTC, and that's because even though they have this broader focus on dark patterns. And the updates that they're proposing to the federal subscription laws, they specifically talk about those types of cancellation roadblocks being illegal. So that's why they're saying you can no longer make customers go through a bunch of steps. Like in some of these recent enforcement actions, I had tons of clients saying, what does it mean to cancel immediately? What is two screens is okay? Is one screen okay? Is three screens okay? And I think these proposed updates are really helpful because essentially the FT is saying none of that is okay unless you get the consumer's consent to serve them an additional offer or have them do something else. If they say no, you have to immediately cancel them. If they hang up in the middle of a call where they've asked to cancel, you're supposed to immediately cancel them. If they're talking to someone on a chat on a website and they get three quarters of the way through the cancellation process and they disconnect, you're supposed to immediately cancel them. So with cancellation specifically... I think that's a big bullseye and everyone, big, small companies, everyone should be looking at their cancellation procedures and how you honor cancellations. More broadly, dark patterns, unexpected, flash sales that aren't really flash sales, hidden fees, limited time countdown clocks. A lot of those things are a little more vague, but haven't identified by the FTC as being potentially dark patterns. So we always look at those on a case by case to see, you know, is it deceptive? Is it hiding the ball? Is the FC likely to say this is essentially a deceptive practice? Are you using shading in a way that confuses the customer by like having the continue button be a certain color until suddenly it's the "No, I don't want to cancel button so people just click it, thinking they're you know clicking the next step. that sort of thing.
0: It's so interesting. You mentioned that we met at the summit conference, and I debuted some new content there. I'm working on some some content relating to retention. And all of the different ways, the different parts of the organization can be helpful with retention. And several, this sort of surprised me, several people at the conference said, oh, you mean like talking to your lawyers and figuring out how many extra screens you're allowed or just what you said, making part of the cancel process. It looks like you're on the next step to cancel, but really what you're saying is take me out of the cancel cycle. Right now we're in a time, an economic downturn. A lot of subscription companies have never experienced an economic downturn they're focusing their lens on retention, how we keep our customers. And so, you know, you kind of have these two things coming at each other. You have the FTC on one side trying to crack down on this. And on the other side, you have companies that have historically taken the high road, starting to feel pressure from their boards or from their leadership to just get to the quarterly number. Are you seeing that as well, kind of increased pressure with these questions of, is two, paid? two screens okay, three screens okay? What about this shade of silver on a silver background? for our disclosures.
1: Absolutely. You know, these are conversations I have with clients every day where it's like, if we do this, we're going to lose X dollars in revenue. We're not going to make the numbers. And I, I'm very sympathetic to that. My approach is never to say you have to take the most conservative approach or you're going to be... See, there's a lot of factors that go into this. And I think your comment about, you know, is the FTC going to go after the most egregious actor... TBD, I think we're shifting a little bit away from that, given how specific they're getting. They did a publication at the end of last year, which is called a Staff Report on Dark Patterns, and it's publicly available. Staff Report on Dark Patterns
0: put out by the FTC. We'll make sure that it's available to listeners in the show notes.
1: Yes. Correct. And it's not the most scintillating read, but it does have an exhibit with a made-up company that the FTC came up with and a bunch of examples of what the FTC would consider a dark pattern in each scenario. So like, they have an example of a countdown clock that has a fake deadline, has an example of a subscription sign-up program that's pretty egregious, right? It has an example that I would say, no, you definitely can't do that. I do think I've had some clients saying, well, we're not doing that, so we must be fine. And I think, again, you'd be wise to look at the more specific guidance and not just say, as long as it's not that egregious example from the exit then we're fine. But it does give some good examples in a very easy to understand, adjustable format of like what the FTC would definitely consider something that it could go after with visuals. And so that's really helpful for companies, I think, to take a look at.
0: Are there any industries or types of companies that you think either historically or as emerging trends are particularly either at risk or
1: badly behaved and worthy of a closer look, in your opinion? In terms of badly behaved, again, could be a whole separate topic, but certainly any advertising or products that are directed to a particularly impressionable audience. So that could be children, but could also be anyone in the kind of fashion, beauty, cosmetics, health and wellness, weight loss sectors. Something that's interesting and without getting too legal And these proposed updates to the negative option rule, in addition to streamlining it to make it apply to all companies, in addition to all of those updates, the FTC is saying it can now seek penalties under that specific negative option rule for misleading claims, misleading things that you're saying in the signup flow, even if they're not directly related to the subscription offer. So what that means to me is... In the past, if you're like a weight loss company, let's say you have like a monthly weight loss pill subscription, something like that. In the past, if there was something that you're saying about the pill that were misleading, like you will lose 20% of your body weight by the end of the year, the FTC would bring a claim under section five that is just generally deceptive. What they're now saying is we can also seek penalties under the negative option rule because it happens to be a subscription program. So it's increasing their authority to basically bring bigger and bigger financial penalties against these types of companies. I'm definitely seeing a trend towards them trying to expand their authority to do that. January just of this year, 2023, they brought their first case under the federal Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, which is the federal subscription law, basically enforcing its first civil penalties under that rule. And they're really trying to expand their ability to do that. And then obviously, they've got tons of previous settlements where it's been, you know, consumer restitution and the millions of dollars. I'm just seeing a big trend on the FTC towards saying we're expanding our authority to really penalize financially these companies that don't comply with the negative option rule. So I think that's an important thing for companies to be on notice of.
0: I probably should have done this earlier, but can you define the negative option rule for our listeners?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So on the federal level, the negative option rule together with the restore online shoppers confidence act, ROSCA are the two sort of federal statutes that will regulate subscription programs. The negative option rule is a bit of a patchwork because it also covers subscription offers through telemarketing and, and other types of offers. And then ROSCA is specific to online offers. I think one of the reasons the FTC is now trying to update the negative option rule is to create one centralized framework that basically gives companies one set of guidance to work from. That's kind of a bottom line for subscription programs because the current patchwork is kind of confusing. I think they're also trying to align it with what the most conservative standard across the 50 states is, typically California. Although one interesting thing to note is that the FTC is basically saying once we update the negative option rule, they're going to rename it too. It's not going to preempt state law. So if you have a state that has a greater protection than the federal law, you still have to comply with that state, which is not very helpful. (laughs) And kind of where I come in to help companies figure out, you still have to take a little bit of a hybrid approach in some instances. But my guess is that they'll try to align with what the most current conservative standard is so that you're not still scrambling to investigate, do a 50-state survey every time you're running a subscription program. Because again, I think they're trying to make it a lot easier for companies to comply. Because right now, a company could say... How am I supposed to know what the law is in Idaho and I'd much rather that the federal law just like give me a bottom line to work from so I can, to your point, show that I'm not being an egregious actor, right? Like I'm trying to comply. I'm trying to be transparent. I'm looking at the guidance and I'm figuring it out. There's a lot to be thinking
0: about right now. And
1: I think about my clients and
0: some of them are large, have big budgets for attorneys, have a lot to lose. Others are just starting out, are bootstrapped. And lawyers like you, I mean, really good lawyers can be expensive although totally necessary and I'm wondering as somebody who I know has a lot of empathy for for your clients and who is wonderfully I mean you're wonderfully practical to talk to in, in the way that you kind of simplify the legal issues and put it into business terms what would be your best advice for subscription entrepreneurs as well as entrepreneurs building subscription models within larger companies that don't have a history of subscriptions who want to stay on the right side of the law but maybe don't have huge huge budgets what's the advice? Where do you spend? Where can you save? What would you advise your cousin, your best friend, your next door neighbor if they were in this position?
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I think if you're starting out, take the time to have the one hour conversation or the 30 minute conversation. I don't do those on the clock. I think it's just really important to understand where you stand and then you can do an evaluation. At what point does it make sense to actually have legal go through this? I would say in general... Before your design teams really get started down a path they can't turn around from, it's the time to get someone looking at it. Like I have clients who will send me their mockups of their design flows in Figma or as a, even like as a PDF or something. And it's literally dropping in comment bubbles and doing line edits if they're a bit more advanced or it's 30 minutes on the front end to do a consultation and say, Hey, here's where you have a structural problem. Or here's where your structure works, but you're going to need to do X, Y, Z down the road. And when you're ready, come back to me and we'll look at it. So I think it depends on what stage of growth you're at. But I think doing that consultation is really, really helpful to A, evaluate any inherent issues in what you're proposing, and then B, figure out at what stage it makes sense to do like more of a line-by-line look at what you're doing, and then C, periodic audits. And then, of course, there may be other things that come in along the way. Like a lot of my really early stage companies come to me and they're like, I don't care about subscriptions. I just need terms of use and a privacy policy. And I'm like, yeah, but your terms of use need to describe what you're doing in terms of the subscription. So really, it's related. And you should be thinking about it now along with all the other things that startups think about, like, you know, trademark and an IP clearance. I think if you're a subscription company, that needs to be part of that initial round of stuff. It's not like a later stage game thing. It's, it's totally related to how you have all your terms of sale, refund policies, website stuff.
0: And are there certain subcategories? I mean, I know you've mentioned a few of them, but if, if I were to come to you, let's say I'm in a big company. And right now, is, as I'm sure you know, almost every large company has a subscription initiative underway, whether it's automotive, healthcare, certainly consumer products, retail, media, software, hardware. Some team is working on it you're saying now is a good time to start talking. And do they come to you and say, is there anything we should be worried about? Or do they come to you and say, here are some of the key areas where we just want to check in with you. We want to show you our sign-up flow. We want to show you our cancel flow. We want to show you our privacy terms. How prepared do they need to be?
1: It typically depends on the level of sophistication of the company and when they're coming to me, right? So I recently advised a major software company, major rideshare app, nationwide restaurant chain on their subscription programs. And those are the clients that are saying, this subscription program is mostly baked, but we know that there are a lot of laws that have been changing. We don't have the infrastructure to be doing a 50-state tracker. So could you look at it, given that you pretty much know, and tell us where we need to make tweaks or line edits, right? And those are the big companies that can really strategically implement advice. And ironically, it doesn't actually cost very much because you're not taking that long to look at it. It's like you can take a quick spin through a PDF flow in an hour and say, I've identified these five issues. The earlier stage companies, you can also be very efficient because they might be at concept stage and they might say, hey, can I have a free trial that converts on this basis? When do I need to send the reminder notices? What are like the top five things the signup flow needs to have? Can you give me a compliance checklist or a sample disclosure and I'll plug and play myself and then run it back by you? That's also a very efficient way to do it. You can provide the building blocks for an early-stage company to do a lot of the legwork themselves, actually. you know They're in the weeds on exactly how it works, but basically giving them here are the must-haves, here are the best practices, and here's where you might be willing to take on some risk if you really think that not doing a certain thing is going to negatively impact your customers or impact consumer attention or your revenue.
0: Yeah, that's great. So it's not as hard as people might think, and it's not as huge a commitment. I think that the advice that I'm taking away is start small and start early.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and even trade associations like Subta are great in terms of you know following blog posts, following industry news. We do newsletters at no cost to people that are listening here. We can make those available as well. But stay on top of mailing lists if you are on a client alert that says, hey, California just changed its law, you know the next day. And you know to maybe reach out and check in and say, hey, does this change anything that we've already been doing? Our established clients will do that too if I send out a client alert or a newsletter saying there's been a change in X state or there's been a change on the federal level. Often they'll say like, hey, maybe this is a good time to just check that what we were doing before still works. Then we don't have to change anything.
0: You started to talk a little bit about some of the companies you've worked with, but can you give an example? You don't have to name them, but just a company that you've worked with that used your expertise really well, got their money's worth.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'm going to go with the technology company, actually, even though it's a little bit more of an enterprise level company than I typically work with. I mean, that we do do a lot of SaaS and technology work. That that one was great because they were transitioning from being primarily a hardware company to a software as a service company. So you had sort of like the cloud subscription element as well as a product subscription element, and they were really good about assimilating everything that they wanted to do, even though the product was not yet launched, the new offering was not yet launched. And what they did was they actually said, here's where we want to end up. Here's what we want the customer end journey to look like. Here's what the goal is in terms of converting the previous subscribers to the new program. And how do we get there? Keeping in mind that these four things are really important to the business to comply with the subscription laws. And so that's someone packaging things up in a very strategic way with a very specific outcome and kind of like telling me what are the business goals so I can figure out what the best way is to get there. So it's not so much, hey, we need legal advice, please redo our terms. It's like, hey, how can you help us get to the business goal, navigating all of this stuff and just distilling it into practical guidance? Like when I advise those clients, I'm not saying, you know, you have to do this because business code 16,000 in California says you have to. It's just, here's what I would advise practically that you do to navigate and mitigate your risk profile. I thought that was a really effective use of our counsel without us spending hundreds of hours advising them. Even though it was a very big company, with, you know, probably 150 law firms that they use, they wanted to use us for this very niche area, just because we're the specialists in that they don't need us for employment or general commercial contracting. It's a specific area, but it's still very highly regulated. And especially if you are a bigger company, has a lot more financial risk associated. And when you weigh that against the cost of a couple of hours of counsel's time, it's really well worth it. I know you use this phrase compliance by design.
0: Is that a good example of that concept?
1: That's a great question because it is. Typically, when I say compliance by design, it's when companies come to me before they've started building their UX. So I'll say, how do we build compliant features, tools, checkboxes, buttons, shading, formatting, whatever? How do we build that all in from the beginning? It's almost like you're an outside partner to the web dev team in that case, right? That's really compliance by design. I think it can be applied to the situation I referred to as well, because obviously they're migrating their model and wanting to implement all of this at that time. But it's more of a later stage process. When I think of compliance by design, it's like you're an architect and you're building in all of these considerations kind of from the ground up.
0: It's a great framework. I was thinking of it kind of in the context of the product, but also in the context of getting started building out the strategy and the business plan. This is great. I feel like I've learned a ton and I hope that all the listeners have too. And I'm hoping to invite you back to dig deeper on a couple of these really juicy topics. Great talking to you, Havana. Before you go, can I get you to do a speed round with us? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. The first subscription you ever had? Original Netflix with the actual discs. With the discs. Okay. Three out at a time. You ever break a disc?
1: I actually don't think I did. I was very responsible.
0: Okay. <laughs> That's where we differ. Most
1: useful subscription that you use today for work? I like To Todoist Premium. Um, I use it for my to-do list. For your to-do list. Okay. Your favorite piece to perform on the piano? So when I was in college, I w- minored in piano. I did a senior recital and I played Ondine from Gaspar de la Nuit by Ravel. Definitely could not play it today if you asked me after 10 years in practice, but at the time it was my favorite piece to perform. And if I could. Get it back up to speed. I'd love to play it again someday. Beautiful. And the most egregious violation of the spirit of subscription law. I had a potential client, shall remain nameless, who came to me with a proposed subscription sign-up flow. There was no disclosures to be seen. And in fact, what they did was they buried the disclosure right down at the bottom of the page where you'd have to scroll down to see it for minutes. And it said, "Ooh, you found the disclosure. What are you doing looking down here? which is crazy. But I actually, I think they got that idea. There's actually an FTC case against Machinima, which is a video game company. They used influencers. And they told the influencers on the YouTube videos not to include disclosures. And at the very bottom of the YouTube caption, they had something that said, no one reads as far into the description. What are you doing snooping around? So I guess despite the fact that was an FTC action, that company thought it was a good idea to copy it. Kind of crazy. (laughs) So don't copy the behavior that's been found illegal in previous FTC actions. That is a very good start.
0: Yeah, that seems like a good place to start with your subscription <laughs> compliance from the sublime to the ridiculous.
1: I will say one of the great things about the subscription industry is like you don't have to be super technical to break into it. You don't have to be a coder. You don't even have to have tons of VC money, right? You can be an industry disruptor if you just have a great idea. And I think a lot of new companies in the space are really valuing the c- customer experience. and That's great. So I would just wrap up by saying if you are prioritizing consumer transparency, prioritizing the customer experience, not hiding the bull. You're already ahead of the pack and you just want to keep on top of what's changing and evolving going forward. Thank you so much, Pavana. This was really a lot of fun and I hope to get you back on the show soon. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Pavana Kumar, a subscription compliance expert and partner at the law firm of Davis and Gilbert. For more about Pavana and Davis and Gilbert, go to www.dglaw.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Pavana, go to robbykilmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard, please take a minute to go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Pavana and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.